Okay, Isaiah 65. It's been quite a while since we've been in Acts. And uh, we began our Advent series. (laughs) And we've had some providential hindrances along the way. So we still have one week left in Advent, (laughs) in theory. And really, this one ended up being really a great uh, message for the new year. And, of course, we were providentially hindered that week as well. So we're still entering into the new year. So with that in mind, uh, we'll remember this series. I've tried to point out that we have needs. We have things that are broken in our world. and, And we've gone through things like sin, death, our broken relationship with God. And today we'll look at our broken world as a whole. And I've tried to point out how the, the promises of God, particularly in Isaiah this this time, uh, promise relief and, and healing from those broken uh, brokennesses. And over all of that is God's covenant of grace, that he will be our God and we will be his people. And so this sermon will wrap up this, this series, and then we will get back into Acts next time, Lord willing. Um, so uh, let's pray, and then we'll read our text. Our Father, we're privileged to call you Father, uh, not by natural birth, but by adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you on his blood and his merits, thanking you for our redemption, for our sustenance, for the joy we have in the spirit. Now, as we look toward another year, may we enter in with open eyes and clarity of thought and sober mindedness as to how you would have us live throughout our sojourn. As we anticipate that day when you create a new our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is the promise in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 of the new heavens and the new earth. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
So imagine you've been stuck in a cave, a deep, dark cave for many days or even months or years. And there's a, a pervasive sulfur stench in the cave. And you know that that stale, stinking air is killing you. And as you wander around in the darkness, one day you catch a, a whiff of sweet, fresh air. It's only a whiff, but it's there and it's consistent. So you follow the passage and you get just a little bit more of that fresh air every day. Knowing and realizing that one day you'll come to the source of that fresh air. You'll come out into the light, into, into the fresh air. As we look at the world around us, it's, it's broken. There are many uh, frustrations, pains, sorrows, tragedies, travesties. And we are in the stench. We're in the stinky, sulfury, dark stench. And yet, as believers, we do have a sweet stream of fresh air. We know for a fact that there is a world out there beyond the cave, beyond our own misery. My goal for this morning is to convince you to become pessimistic optimists. Optimists primarily, but pessimistic ones. I started to realize the other day, I kind of knew this, but it hit me more directly. One of my jobs as a pastor, believe it or not, is to drive you to despair. I want you to despair utterly of all worldly hope. You can't do it. We can't do it. Humanity can't do it. It's hopeless. We will never fix this world. We will never make ourselves smell pretty. It's over. So just give up. On the other side of that coin, I also have the pleasure of pointing you to the hope of that stream of fresh air that comes from outside the cave. And when we finally give up on those worldly hopes, we begin to smell the fresh air of a true hope, of a genuine hope. We put aside all those false hopes that keep disappointing us and we take up the genuine article. And I'm stealing the premise from the, uh, of this message uh, directly from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he put it this way, The gospel is very much more pessimistic in one sense than the profoundest human pessimist. So think of the most pessimistic person you know. The gospel is more pessimistic. Then he says, on the other hand, it is infinitely more optimistic than the highest and brightest optimism of men. I'll read that again. The gospel is very much more pessimistic in one sense than the profoundest human pessimist. On the other hand, it is more infinitely optimistic than the highest and brightest optimism of men. So by the end of this message, I hope we'll be one step closer to becoming pessimistic optimists. People who have utterly, completely despaired of all hope, all worldly hope, but rejoice and thrive in the fresh air of new creation hope.
So we'll begin by looking at our need, as it has been the custom for this Advent sermon. Need, promise, and fulfillment. So the need is to see our estate, to plainly see the condition that we're in. I imagine over the new year, in many pulpits, there were many rousing sermons preached about the coming year, pronouncing blessing, perhaps even declaring the Lord's favor on 2022. You know, this is going to be it. This is 2022 is finally the year humanity will turn over a new leaf. I remember people saying that at the end of 2019. <laughs> Especially 2020, the year of clear vision. How'd that work out? (laughs) 2020. I mean, it's foolish. It's utterly stupid. And yet, I confess, I feel the same impulse at the new year. Or my birthday is my new year, right? This will be the year. Everything's going to click. It's going to fall into place. I'm going to figure it all out. One of my favorite kind of commentaries on this impulse is actually a Jerry Seinfeld joke about birthdays. Uh, In in the show, Seinfeld, he's pretending to be dark and serious because his friend George has a new girlfriend and he wants to make George look funny instead of himself. And so uh, George's girlfriend comes back and she comments on her aunt's birthday. It's her aunt's birthday. And this was Jerry's uh, dark comment. He said... Uh, well, birthdays are merely symbolic of how another year's gone by and how little we've grown. No matter how desperate we are that someday a better self will emerge with each flicker of the candles on the cake, we know it's not to be. That for the rest of our sad, wretched, pathetic lives, this is who we are to the bitter end. Inevitably, irrevocably, happy birthday, no such thing. I, I, I had that memorized at one point. I'd say it on my birthdays. <laughs> but that's an excellent piece of pessimism, isn't it? That's an ideal pessimism. And is it biblical? Uh, kind of it is. Solomon concurs to a degree. Ecclesiastes 1, 8 through 10. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, see it is new, it has already been in the ages before us. So the world will go on the same as it always had. In 2022, it will be no different than 2021, despite all the rousing sermons. Personal problems will arise, personal successes, uh, personal trials will compound, geopolitical problems will continue, people will continue to be selfish, greedy, and sinful. People will die, young and old, travesties, tragedies, trials will persist. The same as they have, year after year, 2022 will be no different than 2021. So it is true. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity, the preacher says. Solomon even goes so far to say in, in chapter 2, verse 17 of Ecclesiastes, So I hated life. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for it is all vanity and striving after wind. Now some may think, think this is overstated pessimism. 
Uh, it's not. It's understated pessimism. I cannot state strongly enough, I want you to despair of worldly hope. Paul said it plainly enough in Romans 8, for the whole creation was subjected to futility, and hope that is seen is not hope. There is no visible hope. It's futility. This is all very cheery, isn't it? But there is a calm, uh, a profound contrast between Seinfeld and Solomon. Uh, there's a sentence I never thought I'd say in a sermon. <laughs> Solomon has an escape clause of sorts, a, a sniff of fresh air. He says, it's all vanity under the sun. That's the phrase that's used throughout Ecclesiastes, right? It's all vanity under the sun. In Ecclesiastes, he uses this phrase, and it is referring to the world apart from God, apart from God's design. Just here on earth, it's all pointless. Nothing has value in and of itself apart from God. So that little wisp of fresh air leads us to ask, there, mu- there must be something beyond, something beyond the stinky, sulfury cave that we live in. And indeed, there is uh, more beyond the cave, much more, which is the source of our optimism. So we've talked a little bit about pessimism leading us to the promise portion of this sermon. So our great need was to see plainly our estate. And now we look at the promise that we find in Isaiah 65. The prophet Isaiah wrote this passage in context of reassurance that God will severely judge Judah and they'll go into exile, but there will be a remnant. There will be a restoration of God's people. God's people will rejoice in Zion again. So again in verse 17 through 19, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I create a new Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This announcement of future light is fresh air. It's optimism unparalleled by the greatest optimists in the world. We're the greatest optimists in the world. Worldly optimists. I think of an example. We've been watching Star Trek. Next generation. I think this is the perfect example of worldly optimism. The show that the, it, it takes place in the 24th century, and at this point in history, Earth has supposedly eradicated poverty, war, hatred. It's all gone in the 25th century. So we have 500 years to get it together. 24th century. Uh, Earth has has become this mature human society. And then the crew of the ship, the Starship Enterprise, flies around the galaxy, basically spreading the humanistic ideal everywhere. 
there's this kind of implied utopian optimism that that one day all the races of the galaxy will achieve a sort of peace and prosperity that humanity has achieved. But really, there's no explanation of greater purpose behind all this. There's no foundation for for the meaning of goodness and truth. Uh, There's no higher calling other than kind of libertarian free will and the success of the human species. But we're still left with the feeling, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Why would anyone care to accomplish such a thing? And it's funny to me, there's a space race of sorts going on right now, these endeavors that we're observing, and it has similar overtones. We see the evil in the world, we see the misery, we see the danger that the globe is in, couched in strange ideas many times. But let's see if we can triumph over it. Let's see if we can colonize space. Let's see if we can preserve our species. Let's see if we cannot build a tower to Babel. Now, for what it's worth, I'm not being critical of the science that's taking place or the innovation or even kind of that innate, I would say, God-given desire to reach out and explore. I think there's a valid conversation about the cultural mandate that could be had with this. Uh, And I'm I'm profoundly entertained by the whole thing. The James Webb telescope just launched or the Parker Solar Probe. It's amazing what humanity is doing. But my point is that the humanistic, utopian, godless, babylesque motivations are profoundly misplaced and ultimately hopeless. Even if the greatest imaginable success was achieved, it has no purpose. And our impulse for human accomplishment is arrogant. It was, first, we'll fix our own planet... Then let's see if we can spread human, hu- humanity across the galaxy. <laughs> we will heal the universe. Which is in contrast to what God promises here. I will remake the cosmos. <laughs> see the contrast? We will, we will heal the universe. I will remake the cosmos. Human, worldly optimism is very pale optimism. But God says, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. So you see what Lloyd-Jones is, is saying there. He says the gospel is more pessimistic than the most profound pessimist. But, but God's optimism, the new heavens and the new earth, is a bright and shining optimism beyond human imagination. It's difficult to say exactly what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. On the one hand, on the extreme, some might suggest that uh, God will kind of just shake the etch-a-sketch and start over. On the other extreme, uh, some might suggest that humanity and the gospel will progress to the point where where we'll finally fulfill what we were supposed to fulfill in, in Eden, and God will kind of refurbish the creation in that way. I think it will be somewhere in between those two things. I think there will be a major cataclysmic destruction of what we know and see of this world and this universe, but it will be reborn. The same heaven and earth that we have, renewed and glorified. John says in Revelation 21 that the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Um, So Christ's 
resurrection, death and resurrection, and our death and resurrection is kind of the pattern, I think, that we should expect for creation. Paul says that our bodies must pass away. When they die, they go into the ground as a seed, but they are raised a new and glorious body. It's still our body, but it's raised new and glorious. And it seems like that's what's going to happen with creation as well, that, that this present world will, will undergo go some kind of death and resurrection. Still the same, but renewed and glorified. Dennis Johnson described it in this way. He said, How to describe the new heavens and the new earth? To describe the coming cosmos negatively, we can say that miseries that now cause such damage and distress will be gone. No mourning, pain, death. No remnant of curse will remain. It is, it is more challenging to portray positively what a world purged of wickedness and woe will be. Prophets and apostles strain language to its limits to offer glimpses of glorious realities beyond our experience. We can say that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the consummated new creation, so his glorious risen body foreshadows the resurrection awaiting his people. After he arose, he could eat and be touched, so the materiality of his body leads us to expect that the landscape painted in the book of Revelation, the tree of life's curative leaves and the ceaseless fruit, for instance, is not wholly symbolic. At least we can say that our ultimate home is not ethereal and immaterial, but a robust reaffirmation of the Creator's original design. For He promised the first heaven and the first earth, pronounced the first heaven and the first earth very good. I like how he put that. At least we can say our ultimate home is not ethereal and immaterial, but a robust reaffirmation of the Creator's original design. That sounds good. <laughs> we can say that. That's optimistic. This is the great promise that, that all the misery of this life will pass away and the, that the whole creation will be made new. And that's a breath of fresh air to us in a dark cave. And it is a promise that with all the, as with all the promises of God, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So that's the final point here is fulfillment that Christ initiated the new, uh, new creation. The fulfillment is in Christ, that He has already initiated the new creation. So the question is, with all the, the talk of pessimism in the future hope, can we thrive now in this season of our exile? What does all this mean for our present life? I mean, do we just kind of wait for Jesus to come back and moan and groan in agony until he gets here? Do we crumple up on the floor of the cave and just just cry out? Maybe sometimes we do, but as a general rule, we, we don't. Uh, my brother was a happy kid as a little guy, like my kid's age. Uh, but he, he would sometimes get dis- disappointed and he would be very expressive about that, he would slump his shoulders and hang his head like this. <laughs> My dad would always start to sing that song, Hang Your Head, Tom Badooley. <laughs> Looking back, I don't know what Brandon thought of that. <laughs> but is that how we should live out the rest of our earthly existence? Kind of Tom Dooley's just waiting for Jesus to come back, head and shoulders drooping. This life and this world are pathetic and godless uh, for the rest of our sad, wretched, pathetic lives, this is who we are to the bitter end. 
just slump to the floor of the cave and moan and complain. Uh, Of course this is not what we're supposed to do. Just because there's no worldly hope at all does not mean there is no hope in this world. The Lord Jesus entered into this mess of a world. He broke into the futility and gave us life and a purpose. For Christians, life in this world is a time of exile. It's a time of wilderness crossing. And if we turn this land of exile into our homeland, we are in real danger. Nevertheless, we should thrive in our exile, enjoying the blessedness of being God's people with gratitude for a great many blessings. So we live with joy in this life because we have hope. So I have uh, four points of optimistic joy here, which are kind of beacons of light or breaths of fresh air in the stale darkness uh, of this world. Um, and they're brief and then we'll conclude. So the first is um, the fact that the new creation is already underway. It's already started. The new creation has started. It's been inaugurated in the Lord Jesus. He's already made his way to the exit, out of the stale, smelly, dark cave. He's departed the land of exile. He's returned to the homeland. Jesus is already there. So the new creation has already started. Uh, listen to how Jesus describes himself. He says in Revelation 3:14, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's how he describes himself. The beginning of God's creation. This is not about the beginning of this creation. This is the beginning of the new creation. It started. It's underway. He is the beginning of the new creation. Just like when Paul describes Jesus in Colossians as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Also, in one very real sense, we have passed into glory with Him. We're still here in our exile, but in a sense, we're with Him in glory through our union with Christ. And in fact, our own new creation has begun as Christians. Regeneration, the new man, is the beginning of recreation, of the new creation. So even in us, the new creation has already begun. We are not physically made new yet. We still live in this broken world, but we are united with Christ. And so spiritually we're raised to newness of life and even we share in his ascension glory right now in heaven. That's what Colossians says. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is life, your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in the sense, because of our union with Christ, we share in his ascension glory already. So, the new creation is not just a future hope of glory. In a sense, it is a present reality for us. We have only a small taste, a whiff of that fresh air. But it's real, it's there, we hold on to it. The process of new creation has begun. So that's optimism, not only for the future, but for the here and now. The second piece of optimism is that the bride is being prepared. Uh, We have a wedding to prepare for. I mean, what bride prepares for her wedding day with gloom and sadness? Perhaps she's waited many painful and lonely years for, for this day, but once engaged, is she going to lie on the floor and, and lament her loneliness? 
And she's going to prepare with eagerness for, for many months. So it is our privilege to be prepared for our marriage to Jesus Christ as the church, to be purified and cleansed and sanctified, to be adorned for that great day. Revelation 21, 1 and 2, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This process of sanctification gives purpose to the toils and trials of this life. You realize that's what toils and trials are doing, is preparing the bride of Christ for Christ. They're producing for us steadfastness, which when it has its full effect has made us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. They produce endurance, which in turn produces character, which in turn produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we live this exile life, not as condemned lost men, but as a bride being prepared for the wedding day. That's optimism. That's optimism for today. The third is that our commission keeps our hands busy while we wait. Uh, if you've ever taken one of those kind of like depression screenings, like if you go to the doctor, they make you fill it out. They ask you whether you like doing the things you like to do. Um, when I promote the po- notion of pessimism of a 100% unadulterated despair of worldly hope, I do just mean worldly hope. We're still to have optimism. We're still to not be depressed and we're still to engage in those things which we are to engage in. To the degree that we've given up on this world, we will be invested in the next. So the person in despair doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to engage in his hobbies or his work. But Jesus has given us a heavenly commission and an unambiguous call to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Peter tells us why we were saved in, in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what a privilege to speak of the light to the other people in the, the dark, smelly cave about the fresh air and, and the light that we are, we are racing toward. That's optimism. The commission keeps our hands busy. We're, we're not depressed. The fourth and final is that we plant gardens of gratitude. Jeremiah calls the people in exile in chapter 29. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare that you may find your welfare. Build houses, take wives, have children, Our despair of worldly hope does not mean we cannot enjoy the pleasures of this life. Uh, We we don't have to become ascetics. 
I think this week I crossed the 800 conversations mark at Ligonier uh, that I've had. Probably one of my favorites was this lady wrote in and asked me whether she could knit and bake to the glory of God. That was just a great question. Can I knit and bake to the glory of God? And we kind of wonder that too sometimes. Like if I'm not doing spiritual work, I'm self-indulgent, I feel guilty. Can I knit and bake to the glory of God? If we're really truly freed from our hope being in the pleasures of this world, we begin to see the good things of this world as gifts from God during our exile. We build our homes, we plant our gardens in the land of exile, not because we've begun to think it's our true home, but because we are resting content in the goodness and graciousness of our Father as we await the homecoming. So, of course, I said, yes, you can knit and bake to the glory of God. And she wanted to know how. And I said, well, just enjoy it. When we gave our kids presents on thanks, or, uh, Christmas, we do ours in the evening. Um, and it really, for parents, it's the greatest joy to watch the kids enjoy their gifts, right? Levi started to dance and, and to smile when one of his toys played music. But that's the joy to the parents who gave him that gift. Or Cohen immediately jumped into building Lego sets. Zoe puts her earrings in her new earring holder. <laughs> Abel's walking around with his new goggles around the house with the stickers still on the lenses. They're having fun. They enjoy their gifts. Doesn't that give us delight as parents? Does, not, does it not give God delight as we enjoy His good gifts? So that's how we can enjoy knitting and baking to the glory of God. As we await our homecoming, realizing this is not our permanent home, but we don't have to sit here and wallow in permanent lament. We plant gardens of gratitude because we have been richly blessed. That's optimism for this life. Now, one day, the buds of new creation will come to full blossom and bear fruit, and the initiation of the new creation will turn to consummation. The already will swallow the not yet. It will finally be done and will be in fullness of the glory of the new creation. So, Revelation 21, 1-4 is the great passage on the fulfillment of this prophecy. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Uh, this passage ties together all the themes from the Advent series. We, we've covered God's promises as it relates to sin, to death, our separation from God and our broken world, and all of it is done away with forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The holy bride is prepared and adorned for her husband. The church, purified and sinless, glorified, beautiful, saved to sin no more. That's that's optimism. Death and mourning and crying, former things have passed away. Isaiah 65, 17. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This doesn't mean necessarily that we won't remember our past lives. It, It means that 
death and tragedy and sin and sorrow and the miseries of this life will be done away with forever. And then the pinnacle of the glory of this new heavens and new earth is in verse 3 of Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. There's that overarching covenant promise from Genesis to Revelation. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the covenant promise. God's people have been following that stream of fresh air for millennia since Abraham, since Eve. Never has anyone been disappointed by the promises of God. That great promise of God, the covenant promise, finds its yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. You see how the optimism of the gospel overshadows any pessimism we could possibly have. What a glorious hope we have. It, it almost makes misery and hopelessness of this world easy. Almost. As with gifts at Christmas time, the anticipation is half the fun. Now, I could have saved us all a lot of time this morning, not preached this sermon, and, and just read Romans 8, 18 through 25. So I'll close with Romans 8, 18 through 25, where Paul says the same thing I said in a much more condensed fashion. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are, were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So be pessimistic optimists. That's my charge to you this morning. Despair utterly of any worldly hope. And rejoice and thrive in the fresh air of, of the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It will be here before we know it. And our eternal habitation will be with God and He with us. Amen.